just a few verses right now. So starting with verse 1. The one who scatters has come up against you, come up against, has come up against you, man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. Now jump to the last verse, verse 13. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. So as we've, we've been looking at the sovereignty of God, the control of God in chapter 1, and now we move on to look at the, the, the intervention of God. And with that, you know, we've seen that there's been rebellion, and we've seen how God is, is, uh, is against this. And so as we go through, you know, the result of that in our lives, uh, is, is living rebellious, uh, I have uh, an opening question for you, and it goes like this. As you go through the pains and trials of life, will you come to realize the greater profit that is yours in Christ? Hebrews tells us to be fixed on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. So we, and within the context there, he's, you know, not to be fixed on the problem, but be fixed on the provision. And the word fixed means to look away from all else exclusively too. So as we go through these trials, will we come to realize the greater profit that is yours in Christ? A passage that I like to point out every once in a while from Romans 8, a familiar passage to all of us, is Romans 8, 28. Because, you know, that's a passage that we like to use to encourage other people when they're going through hard times, and it very seldom does encourage them. But we need to understand what we're to be encouraging them with. You know, you know Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So we go around telling everybody, listen, God's working this to good. And so, you know, our, our misunderstanding, of course, you know, you've heard me say this before, our misunderstanding is that it's the good that we've decided that is good. So, you know, God's working this out to how I want it to be. But the next verse, so the context is really important, the next verse, it always is, the next verse explains what is good is. Verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That is God's good. He is, he's working whatever these things are that we're going through, whether it's been our rebellion that has brought us into it, our God is taking us there simply to teach us, to grow us, whatever it is, He's working it out for good. And what is that good? To reveal Christ in me. To remove from me what is not Christ. Summerist Mom, the English writer, once wrote a story about a janitor at St. Peter's Church in London. One day a young vicar discovered that the janitor was illiterate and he fired him. So jobless, the man invested his meager savings into a tiny tobacco shop. Where he prospered, he bought another, and then it expanded from there. And it ended up being a chain of tobacco stores worth a fortune. One day the man's banker said... You've done really well as an illiterate man. Imagine what you could do if you could read or write. And he replied, well, I'd be a janitor at St. Peter's Church in the Neville Square. 
As you go through the pain and trial of life, will you come to realize the greater profit that is yours in Christ? Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, <clears throat> may not agree with everything that he taught, but an incredible example of one who was fixed on Christ and wanted to, wanted to stay the course and walk with him, despite what was going on in Germany at the time, with the Nazis taking over and he stood, he stood firm, and as a result, he ended up being imprisoned and then eventually martyred. And, you know, through that time of World War II and the Nazis growing in strength and the abuse of so much that was going on, he said this, May God in His mercy lead us through these times, but above all, may He lead us to Himself. Now, do we have that desire as we go through these times, and in particular with Nahum, in these times of rebellion, we see the nation of Assyria, uh, capital being, uh, uh, being Nineveh. We see them certainly rebelling. Remember, they had repented 150 years earlier, but you know, past obedience does not guarantee present blessing. And so they have walked away, but we also see Israel in the midst of all of this, where they have been rebellious. And they're paying the price for it, but we see how God deals with them in this chapter. In verse 1, we see God's intervention. The one who scatters. And within the context, as we read in verse 13, the one who scatters is God himself. I am against you, I will burn up, and I will cut off, in verse 13. So God intervenes here in what has been going on. The, they, they will eventually fall to an alliance between Babylon and the Medes. And uh, there was one other nation, I can't remember who it was, the, the Persians. Okay, So these three came together and they, they took Assyria out. And it's quite an incredible thing that happened. But turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 51. It's here that God talks. He's, he's dealing with Babylon in this chapter, and he's going to destroy them. But in, in describing Babylon, he gives us an understanding of how he used Babylon in the destruction of Assyria and Nineveh. So in chapter 51 of Jeremiah, beginning in verse 20, it reads like this. He says, you are my war club, my weapon of war, and with you I shatter nations, and with you I destroy kingdoms. With you I shatter the horse and his rider, and with you I shatter the chariot and its rider. And with you I shatter man and woman, and with you I shatter old man and youth, and with you I shatter young man and virgin, and with you I shatter the shepherd and his flock, and with you I shatter the farmer and his team, and with you I sh shatter governors and prefects. It's interesting that you know, Nineveh and sees itself as being this great power, and then later Babylon will see the same thing. But what God describes here is that all you are is just a tool, that I am wielding. 
I shatter. As a matter of fact, he uses the phrase, I shatter, which is one word in Hebrew. And he uses it nine times in three verses. Repetition equals emphasis. He's making a big emphasis here. And the word there that we have translated, I shatter, it means I shatter to pieces. So this is a complete destruction. An idea of something that's just been shattered and cannot be put back together. And we find that to be true with the city of, of uh, Nineveh to this day. It's just in ruins. It was in such bad shape at one time, there was a couple of times there's been battles fought at it or nearby it, and these great conquerors had no idea that they were, sta- they were standing at the ruins of Nineveh. This city that once was so great. And we find in this passage that it is God himself who destroys, who shatters to pieces Assyria and Nineveh. But we see that this is, this is true of God's character. When he goes up against what is against him, it is for the purpose of complete annihilation. To shatter to pieces in such a way that there is no coming back. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55 to 58, we read, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. God has dealt with your sin. He has annihilated it. It has been shattered to pieces. This is our God. This this is His character. This is how He deals with that which goes against Him. D.L. Moody said this, Take your stand on the rock of ages. Let death, let the judgment come. The victory is Christ's and yours through him. We go on in our text, the second part of verse 1. We read, Man the fortresses, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. Now, basically, this is kind of a taunt. You know, go ahead, do the best you can. And who's he saying this to? Nahum is saying this to the most powerful nation on the earth at this time, who for hundreds of years has done exactly what it wanted to do. And so now he's saying, go ahead, mount it all up, build it all up, do your best. You know, throughout Scripture, we see the futility in this. And mounting our best to go against God. At one point, at one point, several points, but one specific point, Judah was in trouble. And the enemy was coming down on it. The people were afraid. 
Jehoshaphat was the king, and he called the nation together, and he led the prayer. We have that prayer in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and in verse 6 specifically, he says this, Power and might are in your hand, so that no one can stand against you. This is how Jehoshaphat chose to face what was coming. That nothing can stand against you, God. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. And then we're going to jump over to Acts chapter 4 because Acts 4 references Psalms 2. But here in Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, verse 3, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me... I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So here, you know, there's just this description of the futility of going against God. And he ends it by saying, I have established my king. What's going on here? Let's go to Acts chapter 4. Here in chapter 4 of Acts, beginning, the church is so young, uh, there have been... On the day of Pentecost, uh, the first-year students and I were looking at this this, uh, this past week. On the day of Pentecost, they are um, celebrating something new, and something new happens. The church is born, and they, uh, they see 3,000 come to Christ on that day. And then we find that daily the Lord was adding to that number. And then in chapter 3, Peter and John are just going to the temple to pray because it's the hour of prayer. They're just going about the next thing that's placed before them, and they, but they go about it knowing what they have. And so when the lame man is in front of the temple and he asks for, for help, they look at him and Peter says, silver and gold, I just don't have that, but what I do have, I give you. And so in the name of Jesus Christ, so by the power of Jesus, get up and walk. And he reaches down and takes hold of him. And the, and the wording there, when you do a word study of it, you find that it wasn't a, this gentle help you up. It was a forceful grab him. And it's, it's just like simultaneously grabs him. In the name of Jesus, get up. And as you go on and read, you find that the lame man had faith. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a forcing of Christ on this man. But we don't have all the details, but we know that there was enough given to him that he understood that he needed to put his faith in Christ, and he does it. Peter grabs him, tells him, get up and walk, and he does. Well, as a result, he gets to preach. He gets to preach to the multitudes, and then 5,000 come to Christ. In chapter 4 earlier, the, the, the religious leadership brings Peter and John before them, and they say, by what power and in what name are you doing this? And so we start to see something interesting about the name, because in this chapter, you'll, these two chapters, you find in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. And what it means is by the power of Jesus. So when we say that at the end of our prayer, that's what we're saying, in the name of Jesus. So we need to pay attention to what we say before that to make sure what we're saying agrees with Jesus. And so they, they say, by what power, what authority? They say, it's Jesus. 
And so they go back into the back room, discuss what they need to do with these guys, and they can't deny that a noteworthy miracle has taken place because all the people are giving God the glory. But still, still there's that desire to want God to be the God that I want God to be and the God that I've made God to be. And so they come back outside and they tell Peter and John to stop speaking in this name. Stop speaking in the power of Jesus. And so they, what they do is they say, we can't do that. And they're released and they go straight to the church. They tell the church what's going on. And what does the church do? They come together and pray. And that's what I want us to read together in verse 23 of chapter 4. This is their prayer. When they had been released, they went to their companions and they reported to all that, all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. And they said, now look, this, this is where they, they, they're going to quote from Psalm, from Psalm 2. O Lord... It is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, here we go, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in the city there were gathered together against you, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. They've been told, stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And so they realize that the only way this is possible for them to continue is if the Lord, if Christ is doing this by His Holy Spirit. So they go to him, and while you extend your hands to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So by the power of Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. The enemy wants to shut down Jesus wants to go against God, wants to eliminate God and show itself to be God. It never changes. And so here the enemy says, stop it. And the church knows that if, this is, if they're going to be victorious in this, it's going to be because of the Lord himself, not because of them. And when they go to the Lord, when they realize the greater value that is theirs in Christ. They go to him, and he deals with this. They speak with power. So, now back to Nahum. We're seeing here that it's futile. It's futile to amass all your knowledge and all your talent and all your gifting and all your ability. It's futile to, to amass all of this and live according to that, putting your faith in that, because that goes against God. It's a waste of time. John MacArthur says this, you cannot fight God. It does not work. 
You can't find one man in history, one man in the revelation of God that ever fought against God and won. It can't be done. And so now with this in context. Okay, so we've got the context here of of God's uh, intervention. That he's doing this and it is futile to stand against him. So with that, let's read this chapter starting in verse 3 and then we'll come back to verse 2. Starting in verse 3 and just see how devastating it is for the one who insists to go against God. The shields of his mighty men are colored red and the warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel. When he is prepared to march and the cypress spears are brandished, the chariots race madly in the streets. This is just a description, a depiction of what's going on as, as, as the enemy comes in and invades the city. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. He remembers, so the, the, he remembers his nobles. So the king remembers his nobles, remembers his soldiers. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her walls, and the mantle is set up. The gates of the rivers are opened, and the place is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away, and her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves beating on their breasts. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop! Stop! But no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees are knocking. Also anguish is in the whole body, and all their faces are are grown pale. Where is the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where is the lion, lioness, and lion's cub uh, prowled with nothing to disturb them? The lion tore enough for his cubs, killed enough for his lioness, and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with a ton of flesh. You know, we, we kind of a description of just how luxurious it was how fat and how powerful they were. And all of that is just decimated basically in one evening. They can't hold it back. They can't stop it. Can you imagine? It must take incredible arrogance to think that what I've got is greater than God. But remember, we see ourselves easier in Nineveh than we do with God. The arrogance that we display. In verses 3 to 7, it's devastating it. It's shattered. And and verses 8 to 12 is like a tale of two cities. You know how incredible it was, but not as incredible as it thought. And then we find that the same 
The same is true for us. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If we're really, if, if we're really ready for Jesus to come, and you know, again, I mentioned it a little bit last week, you know, we see all that's going on in society and we're just so defeated and we're down about it and we're angry and we just think this is it. But, you know, do we see any looking up and rejoicing? If we really think this is it? You know, do we, are, do we see that? Are we just upset that the luxurious life that we've had for so long, the power that we've, we've enjoyed for so long may be coming to an end? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in verse 1 we read this now. As to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with, chi with child, and they will not escape. Now, stay there. We're going to read a little more in a second. You know, just thinking through this, I've told you before I need pictures, right? And so I, I was thinking of some, some things in history, and one popped out right away. I, I was thinking about Pearl Harbor. I thought about what life was like there before the attack. And we know even the morning of, before the attack, everything was going along just normal. Even though they knew something was up. An alert had been issued and they were watching, but they didn't know what to watch for, where to watch for it, or when to watch for it. So life was going on along just normal, like any other day. But we know that on that morning, everything fell apart. Just before 8 a.m., everything changed. Those who had just been going about their normal activities also all of a sudden found that life was completely different. It had been undone, had been unraveled. There were 20 American vessels destroyed, including eight battleships. Over 300 planes were destroyed, and more than 2,400 Americans died, including civilians. And another 1,000 were wounded. We knew something was up. We knew it was coming at some time, but we didn't know where, we didn't know when, even though we had a new radar system that actually saw the planes coming in. It was ignored and explained away. Isn't that an incredible picture? You know, of things that we see and we ignore and we explain away. Now look at the rest of this passage in verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians 5. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. 
we are not of night nor of darkness. As you go through these things in life, do you realize the value that is yours in Christ? And that brings us to letter C. For the, in verse 2, For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. So now I'm going back. So I skipped verse 2 to look at the devastation, the intervention of God with his discipline over Nineveh. Now I want to go back and see God's intervention with Israel. And here we read again, For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. Now, I've got a question for you. I need your help with this. There's been a lot of different suggestions as just what this is referring to. The, the, uh, the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel. I mean, you could read and read and read. Everybody's got a different opinion on this. And so I'm interested in hearing your thoughts. Think about Jacob. Think about Israel. Think about where these names come from, how we first found them in Scripture, and what they mean. Now, with all of that, what do you think perhaps Nahum is alluding to when he says this, that they will be like they will be like Jacob, like the splendor of Israel. What do you think? Pretty much what my office sounded like for quite a while. Is there, are there no ideas? What what does Jacob mean? Yes. Right, supplanter, schemer, deceitful, yeah. Okay. God right. Am I on the right track? Yeah, you are. He renamed him. He renamed him as Israel. What does Israel mean? Okay. Wrestle with God, strive with God. Yeah, Jack? Mm-hmm. And Jacob, that actually is another word for God. Okay. And so there's a very great contrast being said, said there and said by Jesus to me. Right. And, and he gets down on his knees after that and says, truly, son of God, you're excited. Okay. Good. Karen, I'd be interested to hear what you say about what What does the name Israel mean? It's just what you call your nation? Yeah? Okay. Good. Then finally I can teach you something about Israel. <laughs> she was really explaining a lot of things to me last week. It was really interesting. Yeah? I, I think, like, in the, in the setting you're talking about Nineveh representing the nation of Assyria. And so I think the wrong conclusion is to say that Jacob and Israel is supposed to be the nation. That the, the former splendor that the nation had, the splendor of the nation will be restored. But this is talking about, though... These nations have raided Israel and Judah. 
and the people have been carried off. That's outwardly that's a picture of them coming to an end, mm. and that the blessing has ceased. But it's very much a picture of saying that, like the power of the world, and it's a significant display of power here, right? He really is. It's, it is this like asking the sea, like how much fury can you possibly have, and saying, and, and then saying like, the Lord is greater still. Mm. And and really setting up this picture that there there is what you said like you cannot fight against God that the splendor that we have is the image that we've been created in and He is declaring like it doesn't matter if you want it this will happen this will be restored. That's right because you are mine and 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 I am faithful. Yeah. You know despite your unfaithfulness, I think that yeah that's that's really interesting. Uh, for time's sake, I better go on and tell you what I've come up with, perhaps it's alluding to the nation as a whole, the nation of Israel as a whole, but referencing the lesson taught by the life of the patriarch Jacob, which means supplanter. You know, he was promised that he would take the place of the older, that he would be the one that would receive the blessing before he was ever born. And the first thing we see him do when he comes on the scene as he's born second, he's a twin, is he's hanging on to his brother Esau's ankle. You know, an incredible, incredible thing of just, I want, <laughs> I want what is yours. And then as he goes on in life, we know the story of the, the lentil stew. And he successfully receives the, uh, what, what was that, uh, the, not the blessing there, but the, uh, the birthright, thank you. And the birthright basically gave him the position of spiritual authority in the family. And, uh, but that's not enough, is it? You know, he's trying really hard to achieve what God has already promised. And so then he goes after the birthright. And he, or he goes after the, uh, the blessing. And he fools his father. And he gets the blessing from his father. I was teaching this one time at his hill, and uh, we were out, had a class outside, the weather was nice, and, and we got to this point, and I said, okay, so now Jacob has tried his best to obtain what God has already promised. He spent a lifetime going after this, and he finds that he doesn't have it. And two of our girls sitting right next to me, simultaneously, like they had practiced it, said, yes, he did. And I looked at him in shock. I said, what do you mean? Well, he's got the, he, he's got the birthright, and he's got the blessing. I said, yeah, but is that what God promised? And then you, you go on in, in his life and you find, turn with me to, um, to, well, you don't have to turn there. Turn to Ephesians because we're going to go there next. I have the Genesis passage up on the screen. Here, Jacob ends up wrestling with Christ. And, you know, Jacob has completely exhausted everything of his. And he's pushed it all ahead of him to protect himself. And in that, that evening, Christ shows up, and Jacob wrestles with Jesus all night long. And we look at that, and we think, what an idiot to fight with Jesus all night long. Well, how long have we been fighting with him? And this is what happens. He says, then he said, let me go, Jesus says, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he's been searching for this blessing. He's been trying to obtain this blessing his whole life. But now he's come to realize that the blessing he's been looking for is nothing that he can manufacture, he can, he can achieve. 
But this blessing only comes from Christ. I will not let you go until you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? Okay, you want my blessing. Where's your confession? What's your name? And he says, my name is Jacob. My name is Supplanter. My name is Schemer. And with that, he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, which means God strives. His life is changed. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. You've come to that point where you realize the only way to win is by giving up. And so now, this principle is consistent throughout Scripture. So you're there at Ephesians. Go to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, I want to read just very familiar words to us. But in the context of what we're talking about, look at verses 1 to 9. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest but God And see, this is the big deal. This is all the difference in the world. His faithfulness now is being shown, just like we see in Nahum. You know, though Israel had been rebellious, though they had been, you know, uh, the, the schemer, God will restore. But God, being rich in mercy, not being given what you deserve, Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace being given what you don't deserve, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The same principle. This is God's faithfulness. This is God's work accomplished in Christ that we only know as we hold on, say, I will not let go. I cannot do a thing. I am the schemer. I am the liar. I am the sinner. I am the rebellious one. I confess this. And God shows his faithfulness. He's the one that restores. 
It says there the second part of verse 2 back in our text. It speaks of the restoration. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. The Lord, I put 2B, it's wrong, it's 2A. The Lord will restore the vine branches. You know, throughout Scripture, we don't have time to go into it, uh, but throughout Scripture, we look at, at the, the illustration, the pictures that are given to us of the vines and the grapes. And we find that it brings great identity to Israel. It, it speaks of their, of their provision that God gives. Because God takes that away at times. And he, he breaks down, you know, there's pictures like in Psalms and in Isaiah of the walls being broken down and the passerbys, the foreigner just walking by and just grabbing the grapes. But here we see that there's a restoration in place. The grapes are an incredible picture, and it's one that's carried out in the New Testament. We know that, that bearing fruit is something that the Lord talks about in John 15, 1-5. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit for apart from me. You can do nothing. And so in, in the context there, we find that the fruit that he's talking about there is a sacrificial love. And then also we find the same in Galatians 5, 17 and 22 to 23. Bearing fruit is the sure reality of those believers who walk by the Spirit. Again, we just can't get away from faith, can we? We just can't get away from faith. But to walk by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit becomes a reality. Listen. Basically, this is what we're coming to with this, and I'm really rushing through this because of the time. But if the wrong way is chosen, then the outcome of, will be being shattered to pieces. It's inevitable. It cannot be avoided. You can't go the wrong way and expect the right results. We're either going to live by faith in Christ or we're going to live by faith in ourselves. That has always been the choice of every man throughout, throughout creation, throughout history. Everyone lives by faith, either in Christ or in self. You can't go the wrong way and expect right results. A man by the name of Roy Regals was a running back for Georgia Tech. Back in 1929, Georgia Tech was playing UCLA in the Rose Bowl. In the second half... Uh, UCLA fumbled the ball, and Regals is the one that scooped it up and ran like a madman down the sideline to score a touchdown for the other team. They lost that game by a touchdown. You can't go the wrong way and expect the right results. It is inevitable. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, we read this. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit 
not from his own effort, but from the Spirit, reap eternal life. Rebellion will, will be smashed by God. God in Christ will always be faithful and never leave nor forsake. Count on it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the reminder that you are in control and that you intervene. And where you intervene, it is for what is good and what is right and what is true of you. And that you allow us to know this through your, through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we do ask for your wisdom to look to Jesus and by faith allow you to do your will. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Appreciate it very much.